Hello, and welcome to Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Macheon Diagnostics. In this podcast series, we will be discussing thrombosis and hemostasis from the perspective of our host, benign hematologist and medical director of Macheon Diagnostics, Dr. Brad Lewis. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. With that, I'll turn it over to Dr. Lewis. Brad, take it away. Hi, this is Brad Lewis from Macheon Diagnostics, back with another podcast from coagulation-related disorders. Now, today I wanted to step into another mucky pile and talk about hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis. From now on, that'll be HLH. I want to talk a little bit about when you might want to think about HLH, why you might want to think about HLH, and then how to diagnose this disorder um, insofar as we can. I am going to focus mostly on adults. That's what I have experience with, but I will um, at least nod a bit to some of the testing we offer, which may be useful for children also. So let's go back to the beginning. What is HLH, hemophagocytic lymphohistiocytosis? This is a, a hyperinflammatory syndrome. Unfortunately, there is, as of today, no clearly diagnostic test. You can, to some extent, separate out the syndrome proper from the disease, certainly in children, when they have clear-cut genetic abnormalities associated with this dysregulation of your immune system. In adults, that's mercury. Many adults will present with this syndrome, sometimes with less clear-cut mutations, which may be increasing their risk of having this happen under the right stress situations. Um, and in other cases, there is a hyperinflammatory cytokine-mediated or cytokine storm-associated disorder, uh, which can come in for other reasons because of Hodgkin's disease, lymphomas, uh, some rheumatologic diseases, even some drug-induced disorders. So it, it can get a bit murky. But in general, it's a hyperinflammatory syndrome. It's a macrophage activation that in HLH proper happens because of a T-cell failure. There's an inability of the T-cells to clear either normal cells or organisms themselves. And because they're unable to, to clear these cells, this continued cyclic activation of the macrophages continues to be worsened by this underlying trigger, whatever it was, particularly in adults. As a result of this, there's hyperproduction of cytokines, which results in all the usual cytokine storm symptoms with fevers, multiple organ failures, cytopenias, continued worsening immune dysfunction, and the classic hemophagocytosis or ingestion of blood cells by the activated macrophages in the bone marrow. This disorder presents like a lot of other syndromes which cause cytokine activation, which can make it confusing. Now, to make it even more confusing, and as I'm going to come back to several times, in some ways conceptually analogous to atypical HUS, which you've also heard me talk about, this is a disorder where the, the same diseases which can trigger HLH can also mimic HLH, making things particularly complicated sometimes. But HLH is often triggered by infections. Epstein-Barr virus, CMV, HIV are all notorious. Leishmaniasis, if that's uh, geographically appropriate for you or your patient, is certainly a common cause as in malaria, occasionally numerous bacterial infections, disseminated TB. Number of malignancies, most notoriously lymphomas and leukemias, noting that lymphomas can also mimic this syndrome with their presentation, and we'll get back to some of that in just a moment. And it also can be 
uh, triggered by rheumatologic catastrophes, rheumatoid arthritis, systemic juvenile immune arthritis can also look this way, catastrophic APLS can look a bit this way. Certainly all of those can trigger an HLH-like response in someone who is predisposed to that response, either by some genetic mutation or by something we don't yet understand well. One of the problems with HLH and one of the reasons for having this talk is that it's a devastating disorder with a fairly high mortality and early diagnosis seems to be very important in patients. Now, in some patients, particularly in the malignancy associated, the prognosis is very poor and it's not entirely clear that early diagnosis makes such a big difference. But um, you do want to diagnose this disorder and begin treatment for the disorder as quickly as possible in those patients who have severe disease, which appears to be progressive. And we'll talk in just a moment about some things which might make it look that way. There are, for children, the HLH 2004 diagnostic criteria, which still are uh, more or less used as a way of approaching this. They're quite good in children. They become significantly less effective in adults who present with a number of other confusing possibilities, not so commonly seen in children. But the diagnostic criteria are fever, splenomegaly, without adenopathy. If you see substantial adenopathy in a patient now where you're considering HLH, you really ought to be thinking about formal or lymphoma-like disorders, Castleman's disease, lymphangioblastic lymphadenopathy, or lymphomas proper, Hodgkin's disease, which can look very much like this. And soluble interleukin-2 receptor, otherwise known as CD25, is also typically elevated as a marker of the T-cell activation, and a cutoff of 2400 is often used. And then lastly, hemophagocytosis in the bone marrow or occasionally in, in other tissues is also a marker of this disease. It is not, however, pathognomonic for this disease. You can see hemophagocytosis in a number of settings where there's macrophage activation as a result of malignancies or infection or other underlying disorders. And similarly, many patients, especially early on, will present without hemophagocytosis. So it's not a sine qua non, but it is one of the criteria. And typically, if you have five of these eight criteria, you're considered to be meeting the criteria for HLH. There are other activation assays which are available. I'm going to focus on the soluble interleukin-2 today, in part because we have that available as a stat test, allowing you to make your decisions early on. As you know, the hallmark, if you will, of Machon Diagnostics is we try to offer tests that are critical to diagnosing disorders quickly, and we try to offer them in a stat fashion. We do offer the soluble interleukin-2 receptor for just that reason. Other assays are often used and can, especially in certain situations, provide additional value, and they're things you may want to pursue as you're pursuing this diagnosis. But today, I'm really going to talk about trying to make the diagnosis quickly so that therapy can be initiated quickly in patients while they're still actively ill in the hospital. What about the role of genetic testing? So a number of genes which impair immune function in one way or another. Perforin was the first to be noted, but there are now a number of others. And the presence of these genetic disorders, particularly when they're homozygous, is the hallmark of pediatric congenital HLH disease and makes the diagnosis even in the absence of the other criteria. As you move into adulthood where there are often more triggers and the triggers may be more substantial in terms of malignancies and infections, you may find that Patients still have genetic mutations, but they're heterozygous. There may be mutations which aren't shown to cause problems in children, but may impair to some degree the immune response. 
so that there's this interplay between the degree of the trigger and the genetic predisposition. In young children, occasionally you'll find them with almost no real trigger and simply the genetic predisposition. And as you move on into adults, often it's all trigger and there may be no apparent predisposition and the trigger simply activated the immune system more than it was able to handle. And then there are people who fall in the middle, if, if you will. So what tests do I recommend for approaching someone who presents with HLH? Let me take a step back before I answer that. And the first question is, when should you suspect HLH? I think too often this is a disorder which simply doesn't get thought about quickly enough in patients who present ill, looking as though they're septic. These are patients who present with fever, oftentimes with cytopenias associated with it. Again, looking very much like they're septic. They also have rashes. It may raise the question of could this be leukemia or lymphoma or other underlying malignancies. Similarly, if they have hepatosplenomegaly, the idea in this setting, the differential may lean towards a lymphoma and people begin to wander around that possibility. The possibility of a catastrophic autoimmune disorder is raised in these patients when they present with profound fevers. There may be CNS involvement. There is the splenomegaly, the pancytopenia and the liver failure. So whenever a patient presents with this cytokine-like syndrome, with a sepsis-like syndrome, which can be consistent with quite a number of disorders, you ought to at least begin to think about the possibility of could there be either primarily HLH or could this be an HLH or HLH-like syndrome that's presenting in association with or triggered by the underlying other disorder. And the differential diagnosis, obviously, is going to be fairly broad with HLH. You're going to have to think about sepsis of almost every kind. As I mentioned earlier on, you're going to want to think about lymphomas and the lymphoma-like disorders, particularly Castleman's. You're going to want to think about primary liver failure, particularly viral liver failure, which can present with much the same sort of a syndrome. You want to think about the catastrophic auto-inflammatory disorders, adult Stills disease, or obviously pediatric variants of that, lupus, catastrophic APLS, all of those are certainly possibilities. You're going to want to think about dress syndrome occasionally. That can present very much like this with the fevers, the cytokine release syndrome, and fairly often a a very prominent rash component to this. And lastly, you may want to think a little bit about thrombotic microangiopathies, which can to some extent be mimicked by HLH, but which also do themselves sometimes mimic HLH. Given that differential and the sort of situations where you're going to want to be thinking about it, how do you approach someone who presents with this? The first is is a good history, looking for other kinds of possibilities. On exam, you're going to uh, obviously document the fever. You're going to be looking for hepatosplenomegaly, and you're going to be looking for adenopathy, not because it diagnoses the disorder, but because it moves you away from the diagnosis of the disorder. It does not prove that that's not what's going on, but it certainly makes it substantially less likely and makes other things in the differential more likely. You will want to ask about any prior episodes for the patient, and you would very much like to know whether there's any family history of any similar sorts of unexplained or previously diagnosed in hyperinflammatory disorders. After that, you're going to want to do a lab workup to begin to sort this out. And some of it is the routine labs that I'm sure have already been sent off on this patient with a CBC, liver function testing, renal function testing. You're also going to want to check fibrinogen and fasting triglycerides at the same time. On top of that, you're going to want to get inflammatory markers. And you're going to want the ferritin since that appears to be useful. And you do want to get the soluble interleukin-2 or a soluble CD25 that's quickly available if its present is a marker of uh, underlying inflammation and it makes the disorder that much more likely. Is it possible to have an elevated soluble interleukin-2 in settings other than HLH? Absolutely. It's a marker of 
inflammatory disease. You can see it particularly in lymphomas and lymphoproliferative disorders. For that reason, it is one of the criteria. After that, if you are still suspicious or even before you wait for the results of the other testing, you may want to send off a bone marrow biopsy looking for hemophagocytosis, remembering that that's not itself pathognomonic and you may not find it if you've done this bone marrow biopsy early. After you've done those, particularly if they come back suspicious, you're going to want to do other studies to look for other possibilities in the differential diagnosis. You've already sent off blood cultures. You may want to send off viral PCRs for EBV, CMV. You're going to want to look for HIV. You probably want to get a CT scan of their chest, abdomen, and pelvis, looking for the adenopathy, which would move you off of this diagnosis. And you may, down the road, possibly move forward looking for other more detailed tests to evaluate T-cell function. So again, the punchline with HLH is you're going to want to think about it often when patients present with unexplained cytokine storm type symptoms. Even if you think it might be explained, you may want to be bringing up the possibility of HLH early on so that you're ready to move in case blood cultures and other tests don't prove to be useful. After doing the routine testing, you are going to want to send off soluble interleukin-2 if this diagnosis remains on your differential. And you may want to think about sending off next-gen sequencing for the currently known genes for HLH. The yield is fairly high in children presenting with HLH and adults, where it's much more often a reactive sort of disorder. You may still find genetic markers of possible immune dysfunction. And in some series, 20 to 30% or more of adults presenting with what appears to be HLH will have some known genetic defects in the genes known to cause HLH in children. So there may be some value to this. How soon should you send this off? I think that's a bit unclear. Genetic testing is a bit expensive at about $3,000 when it's sent off stat. Often people will say that you don't want to send it off because it takes so long to come back. But actually, if you order it through Machon and tell us you want it stat, we can have those results back in about two days, two, two business days, so that it becomes a, a test that could be useful in the acute setting, even in these catastrophically ill patients. So in a patient who's quite ill and where you have significant suspicion for HLH, you may want to consider sending off the genetic studies early, understanding that if the genetics are negative, it's simply unhelpful. But if the genetics are positive or strongly suspicious in that kind of a setting, that may be enough to push you over the edge to making the diagnosis of HLH. With that, that's an approach to HLH with some of the testing that's offered here at Machion Diagnostics. Again, it is somewhat similar conceptually to atypical HUS in that it's a, a disease where it's critical to make the diagnosis as quickly as possible. Oftentimes, there is not a clear-cut diagnostic test, although genetics may be helpful in some settings, particularly in children, to make a clear-cut diagnosis. And even in adults, it may strongly push you in one direction or another on this diagnosis. Till we talk again. Thank you. That's it for us here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears, a podcast produced by Machion Diagnostics, your reference lab and CRO specializing in thrombosis, hemostasis, and rare disease. Thank you for listening. And if you have a question or comment or there's a topic you'd like Dr. Lewis to speak to, please send us an email to bloodsweatandsmears at machiondiagnostics.com. That's M-A-C-H-A-O-N diagnostics.com. You can follow Machion at Twitter at DX. Be sure to subscribe to stay in the know. Share this podcast with clinicians you think might appreciate it. And we hope you'll join us next time here at Blood, Sweat, and Smears.